This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. Thank you for reminding me of that. That was very beautiful. While I was traveling up to this convention on the train, I just happened to read something, and I stumbled across a very well-known quote from uh, Shantideva's Bodhicharya Vatara. You all know this quote. It says something like, Today my life has borne fruit. Today I am born in the Buddha's family. Now I must act in a way that will not stain this family. And when I stumbled across this quote again that I know, I was reminded of a very particular time in my life, which was just after my ordination. Um, I was just coming back from my ordination retreat, you know, with this particular glow and shine and radiance that people have about them when they've just got ordained. And I came home to my flat and some friends had done something to the flat. And part of what they had done was sticking little Dharma quotes all over the place. So you'd find them in the most unlikely places. You'd open a bathroom cupboard, grasping for the shampoo, and you'd find a quote about purity. (laughs) And you were trying to cook and grasping for some spices, and you found a quote about the taste of salt and the ocean and freedom. (laughs) So most of these quotes didn't didn't last for very long, because um, I think my family got slightly unnerved of, you know, whatever they touched, something deep was jumping at them. Two of these quotes stayed for rather long, probably many months, possibly even some years. And one of them was this quote about being born into the family of the Buddhas and wanting to live up to this. And this is, you know, I remember this sense of when I was just ordained. You know, this was really the sense of, I felt very strongly that this, yeah, this was what I wanted to do. I had, in a sense, been born into a noble family and I wanted to live up to it. And of course, in the Bodhicharya Vatara, these words are uttered um, after the Bodhicitta has arisen, so it's quite a different order. But still, on a much humbler scale, it was very much what I felt about being ordained. I felt I had been born into a kind of noble family, and I had received a supremely precious gift. And I felt this really intense wish to pass on this flame that I had been given, I had received an intense wish to protect and to nurture this community that had welcomed me and to do my best to help it thrive. So this noble family, maybe it's a bit grand to call it the Buddha's family, maybe not. This order is just a very strange beast. You know, it's uh, like uh, Lokeshwar just said, you know, holding contradictions. Um, It's obviously not consisting of fully enlightened beings, so it's not flawless by any means, as we all know. On the one hand, it's um, a bunch of people with lots of kleshas, but also sincerely going for refuge, really sincerely orientating their hearts and minds towards qualities of awakening. And on the other hand, it can be, maybe it is, a thousand-armed Avalokiteshvara. It is, can be, has the potential of being a bodhisattva force at work in the world. 
And I, for one, have really connected very strongly, very deeply with this mythic dimension of the order. When I say mythic, um, I hope we all understand it's not about fantasy or it's not about something unreal. It's very real, but it's also very ungraspable and unfathomable. So for me, getting ordained, it triggered this really feeling that I wanted to offer myself as full-heartedly as I could possibly and to serve the Dharma. And in particular, to serve the Dharma by serving this particular community, this order, and our wider movement. And this is what my heart really burned for at ordination, and it has kept on burning for this, and it still does. I suppose you could call it a path of serving the Dharma, although I think that sounds a bit grand. But just let's call it that for the time being. So here we've been talking about paths to insight. Now I'm quite sure uh, when after my ordination I felt this deep passion for serving the Dharma, for serving the order, I didn't think of it in terms of any particular path, certainly not a path to insight. Um, it just felt like a very natural, spontaneous, um, heartfelt response coming from devotion, uh, gratitude and love. Not devotion for the Buddhas, for my teachers, gratitude for the gift I had received and loved, really, real deep love for the community I found myself in. But if today I ask myself where in my immediate experience I have felt most ex- effectively uh, myself as entering the arena of spiritual death, spiritual death in the sense of um, well, a challenge to myself, you, and a gradual loosening of self-reference to some extent, I certainly can see that attempting to serve the Dharma, to serve the order, is providing plenty of material for spiritual death. So because the time is short, I will only very briefly touch on three areas, three quite concrete examples of where um, areas that I've experienced as uh, quite powerful cremation grounds. And of course, they are happening in the overall context of the whole system of practice and of spiritual life, so they, of course, need the support of meditation, meditative approaches to insight. So it's not saying that on their own they would have the power to lead to decisive breakthrough and to seeing through the mental construction of self. But they are certainly powerful cremation grounds for me. And the three I want to briefly touch on is working with others, working with fear, and working for an unknown future. So firstly, working with others. So when we try to allow this mysterious thousand-armed Avalokiteshvara force to come into existence, there's this fascinating interplay of the individual hands and the unified body. That's an awesome mystery, that one. It's always been to me. How can this collective force be both completely unified and yet also truly allow for complete individual freedom and individual expression? It's a mystery. And on the practical side, lots and lots could be said about how working with others in the order can be a cremation ground. Uh, Those of us who were here on the first day of the convention heard uh, Viveka read out a very beautiful, striking poem by David White with this particularly striking line saying, No self can survive a real conversation. I think you could expand that and say, no self can survive real teamwork. (laughs) So, you know, 
I could talk about the basic stuff of egos rubbing against against each other, you know, and about sanskaras being drawn out into the light rather mercilessly when you work with others. Uh, about the, this business of reflecting each other and uh, discerning usually each other's blind spots. And about the painful but very useful crushing of illusions one may have upheld about oneself. Um, I won't be talking about that. Uh, the, the what you could call the more the sweat and tears aspect of working with others. And I'm sure most of us could give whole series of talks on these aspects <laughs> of working with others. Uh, I think you know what I mean. I'd like to focus on just one aspect and a more, you know, far more blissful aspect of work with others um, in the order. And I would like just to try to convey something of those magic moments when we are kind in our working together, kind of drawn beyond ourselves in our working together. Sometimes there are these times when self seems to just become a bit thinner, thinner a bit looser, a bit more permeable. And I experience this sometimes when we are trying to make decisions consensually. I know that, you know, trying to make consensual decisions can also be a sweat and tear business, you know, with lots of never-ending meetings and so forth. But it also sometimes can take on some very different quality in my experience. And if I honestly ask myself where I have come closest to experiencing what Bhante calls, or what I understand he calls the third order of consciousness, or what I call more um, profanely, order at its best. Um, in my personal experience, strangely enough, it's not been in puja, it's not been in collective meditation, it's not even been on retreat, The retreats can be so powerful. Uh, it's not been in my chapter, though my chapter is really a good chapter. Um, for me, strangely, it's been in situations where I've been sitting together with other order members with some hands-on task to solve, trying to come up with the best possible solution. And sometimes in these situations, when we're searching for a consensus, searching for the best outcome, a mysterious shift can happen. It seems that some ingredients are necessary for this to happen, and they by no means happen every time we're trying to make collective decisions. But that some of these ingredients are um, a real deep listening to each other. She's surrounded by some amount of silence and waiting and calm. A genuine openness on everybody's part uh, about the outcome. That means a genuine willingness to uh, uh, not cling, not identify with one's own view. To bring it in, to voice it, and to not hold back with it. To really, in a way, lay everything out openly, one's views, one's concerns, one's feelings but then also to be willing to let go of it, if necessary, or to let it be modified by what one hears. A motivation to help find the best possible outcome for the well-being of all, so an altruistic uh, attitude, and a receptivity for truth to emerge, and a sense of listening and waiting and being patient. And sometimes, in my experience, when these ingredients are present, something I mean, almost magic can happen. It feels magic to me. Uh, it is as if we make ourselves more permeable um, and we allow something other to come through. And I've experienced this in very 
you know, simple things like meetings of our center team. I have experienced it quite a few times. I've experienced moments of that, you know, when we meet in the European Chairs Assembly, or um, moments, glimpses of that in our work as the International Council. So it's like from this collective striving and listening and being able to get one's own views out of the way, um, it's something like almost by itself a clear outcome will emerge, as if by itself. And it's usually better than what each of us could have brought to the situation individually. And the outcome is then not owned by anybody. It's not like anybody had persuaded anybody else, you know, or had won over someone. Uh, it's the outcome emerged from a collective effort and a collective receptivity. And I experience these moments as truly, genuinely magic and very precious. It's order at its best, in my experience. A second cremation ground on the path of trying to serve the Dharma, for me, is working with fear. It's a very frequent working ground for me. I've got this kind of personal precept that if I see something that needs to be done in our community, you know, something needs to be addressed or um, just done, um, and if I'm in a position to respond, I just try to do it. Just a personal precept. If I'm asked to do something, unless I'm really unable to, or unless it's really an unreasonable request, I just try to say yes. And then what happens? I often encounter fear. And this fear can show up as... Um, thinking, oh God, I can't do this. I cannot possibly do this. Or feeling overwhelmed, uh, unable, daunted, just not up to this task. And I've particularly often felt like this since becoming a chair of a busy urban center, plus a retreat center, uh, at a time when two of my three children were still preschoolers, toddlers. So apart from feeling really that I lacked the time, to do the job properly, I also felt that I personally felt really acutely unsuited personally for the task. I just seemed to lack so many of the qualities and skills needed. I think you know, being a chair has a lot to do with communication, yeah, to uh, really um, help communication channels to flow. And I don't really consider myself as a very skillful communicator. Uh, in fact, I still sometimes feel hopelessly exasperatingly clumsy at communication. Um, and I think, you know, sensitive communication that is really empowering, that really helps people free, free up their energies and um, find their faith and their confidence. It's just a complex, a delicate, sensitive thing to do, even one-to-one, -one, let alone complex team dynamics and, you know, team situations. I have no management skills. When I started, I knew nothing about charity law. I knew nothing about financial planning, insurances, work contracts. And I've been told Germany's charity taxation system is apparently the most complicated in the entire world, so no wonder I still don't quite have got my head around it. I just felt completely unqualified. And I must say, I still often do after six years. <laughs> Yet, there was no other person obviously better suited to the task and willing so I decided to rise to the challenge. I must say, I have often wondered why fear um, doesn't take a much more prominent place in Buddhist teaching. You know, it's not part of any of the big lists, mental events or whatever, uh, but 
because for me in my own personal life it's just such a strong flavor of my emotional landscape um, apparently it doesn't show too much but I actually do have to work a lot with fear I must say it doesn't take a lot to scare me <laughs> all sorts of things trigger fear just moving into a difficult conversation initiating a difficult conversation uh, standing visibly in front of people I find very scary even phoning our tax advisor I find really scary <laughs> and scare, fear comes in various shades yeah, it, comes, uh, it can come as a panic attack in the middle of the night usually fairly brief I've become quite good at panic management uh, to really just feelings of mild unease in situations but I must say it is a very interesting emotion it's an utterly fascinating emotion. And fear is very bound up with a sense of self. You know, self that feeling obviously threatened. So when there is fear, there is the sense of self, very naked, very visible self, scared. So although there is fear is really unpleasant, I've come to really appreciate fear in my life. Because it forces me into a place where I only have the choice to either run away, which I'm usually not willing to do, or to move forward to something beyond my current sense of me. Yeah. So, for example, if I feel this feeling of, oh, I, can't, I cannot do this, I cannot do this. I mean, this sentence is full of wrong views. I mean, it's just one big wrong view, because it starts with I... <laughs> assuming this fixed identity yeah, this me, a fixed self-view usually also connected with a monocausal worldview like as if one single agent could determine any outcome on its own rather than this much richer and subtler view of, of Pratitya Samudpada as this web of you know, intricate web of conditions so I is really you know, quite a fishy concept then cannot, I cannot, is also very black and white thinking, isn't it? It's just dealing in fixed categories. Well, it, it's either it can or it cannot. It's right or wrong. Rather than, you know, seeing that um, acting is a very flowing process of creative emerging. And this, you know, I cannot do this. Again, it's a fixed thing. A fixed idea of an outcome, usually in my case tinged with quite a lot of uh, perfectionism, you know, a fixed view of what the right outcome would be, you know, what a real sad person would do and what a real good meeting would, would look like and what a real spiritual friend would look like. <laughs> uh, so if you, there are some fear, fearful persons out there, could be that there are a few more, uh, scare bunnies like me, um, if you're a victim of such thoughts like, oh, I cannot do this, please just face it and look at it. It's really fruitful ground for exploration. So when I encounter fear, when I manage to work with it well, I try to face it squarely, to really look at it, not to run away, and then to try to just get myself out of the way as best possible. Yeah, to plunge into something much wider, to plunge into a sense of faith, and to just get on with what needs to be done. And in a sense, when I feel I cannot do this, I'm quite right. You know, I cannot do this. I don't have to do it. I don't have to do it. Yeah? Just give myself, just give yourself fully. Just get your ideas of me and I and can, cannot, out of the way. And allow something other, larger to do the rest. 
For me, very often it feels like opening up in faith to some open dimension, something more skylight like, something greater, not me. And I haven't worked out the metaphysics of it. I don't need to. I mean, maybe it's Tara. Sometimes it feels like opening up to Tara. I know in the early years after being ordained, I very often prayed to Tara before I entered some situation that I felt a bit scared of, like giving a talk. <laughs> I used to pray to her to please take over. I don't do that these days so, so often. Or is it reality, you know, just letting go into reality? Uh, or is it the Dharma Niyama? Who knows? I don't need... I don't feel I need to work out the metaphysics, but it has to do with getting myself out of the way, making myself permeable, and allowing something to work through me, and supporting this, but just giving myself as fully as seems possible in that moment. It's got to do with surrender. So the third point I'd like to make will be brief, and it's not so much uh, about a cremation ground, um, it's something quite close to my heart. It's more like a sense of um, opening my, up to something which goes really beyond myself or ourselves as we are here today. I've tried in the beginning to express this deep sense of love that I feel for this precious community that we've got. You know, it's such a wondrous thing, this order. You know, this thousand-armed Avalokiteshvara, like this bodhisattva force, trying to somehow express itself through this almost 200 uh, individuals. And these almost, no, 2,000, sorry, 2,000 individuals. And these 2,000 individuals with all their quite impressive range of qualities. I was looking this morning around after breakfast and just feeling so moved, you know. What a vast array of wondrous qualities we have in this order. You know, fantastic people with such talents and such greatness and such dedication, such goodwill, well, such wisdom, you know, in some places. And also, you know, some blatant flaws at times. <laughs> uh, this varied bunch of 2,000, almost 2,000 individuals trying to allow this bodhisattva force to somehow manifest itself through them. I really love this order. I really love this order. Love to sing. Sometimes I really love to. Would like to sing a love song. <laughs> Said that recently somewhere else. Anyway, but I'm also keenly aware that it is a very young order. It is a very, you know, pretty young spiritual movement that we are. Um, and what has been achieved in less than 50 years is pretty amazing. Yet, in the broader picture, it is still very early days. That's how I feel. Our founders still alive. We're still clarifying our principles. In a sense, I think we're still working out what on earth we are. So, so it seems to me, at least. I think Bante has prepared us for his death in an exemplary way. I mean, he couldn't possibly have done it any better than he did. But it still remains um, a very delicate transition that we will need to make once he's gone. So we are alive and kicking as an order, but whether we do manage to carry on this precious flame that we've received and to pass it on to further generations, far beyond our own lifetime, whether we will continue as a vibrant, spiritually effective community, that still remains to be seen. It's not proven. We cannot really know at this point in time. 
So if we see Sri Ragna as a new Buddhist tradition of sorts, with a fresh reformulation of the Dharma, which is how I tend to see it, well, it probably takes a new tradition a few generations to really grow deep roots. Apparently, it took Tibetan Buddhism several hundred, hundred years to really take firmly roots in Tibet. So if this is true, that means that we, you here today, we will never find out. You know, in our present lifetime at least, we will never find out whether this experiment has really worked. You know, as a, as a tradition that will last for generations, vital and vibrant. Of course, if it does disintegrate after Bantu's death, we'll, we might find out. But we will never find out if it works. Not in this life, at least. So I feel that this is the task that we here need to face, that I would like to learn to face. It depends on us here, on each and every one of us, this generation of practitioners, whether Tri Ratna will just be a brief flickering in the history of Buddhism, or a great current of spiritual energy lasting for many generations, far after our own lives. So in a sense, I feel I am dedicating my life and Probably we all are dedicating our lives to something that I deeply wish will carry on as a powerful force of good for future generations, but that we can't know for sure will work out. And if it does work out, we will probably not be around to see it in its full bloom. So may we face this task as best we can, taking this responsibility really seriously. So I'd like to finish echoing the very beautiful words that Vesantra used yesterday in his meditation. Sort of your words, but <laughs> change probably. Let love and wisdom grow in our lives. Let love and wisdom grow in the order. Let love and wisdom flow through the order into the world as a force of good for all that lives and far beyond the small span of our own lives. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you.